Good day. Welcome back to Arguing History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the English language today, having written well over 100 books. Today, Professor Black and I will be doing an episode of Arguing History on the topic of Is Military History Worth Studying? Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor Black, my uh, first question to you would be, is military history worth studying? And if so, why? Well, I think military history is worth studying, yes. Why? For a variety of reasons. One, it has its inherent interest, and I think that's important. History is not simply a utilitarian subject, and the attempt to present any branch of literature, learning, scholarship, or just interest simply on utilitarian grounds is not terribly helpful. But in utilitarian terms, clearly, war is a very important constituent of the past. It is an important aspect, either in reality or prospect of the present, and it is likely to be so also in the future. So understanding the potential, the difficulties, the discontinuities and the character of military history is therefore important to understanding the past, present and future of, of human life. In your book, Rethinking Military History, you argue that the genre had several problematical aspects uh, to it as a field, military history that is. What are they? Well, I think you're absolutely right. As studied or presented in the West, um, it is very much centered on a set narrative uh, and a set number of uh, conflicts and is generally treated in a relatively simplistic fashion. And the two major innovations of the last 60 years, first, the war and society innovation, which I think we can date to the 1960s, although there were earlier iterations, and then to the face of battle, which we can date to the 70s, although, again, there were earlier iterations, both of them, I'm afraid to say, I think have rather gone stale or at least formulaic. Yes, war, you know, to take the latter, yes, war um, involves, you know, both pleasure and pain to individuals. Yes, there is unit cohesion is tremendously important at the level of individuals. Well, once one said that, what precisely does one gain writing, shall we say, yet another book on yet another familiar campaign, which tells us that? And the same, I think, is the case with war and society. War and society often seems to be an aspect of writing social history with the war left out. But the, um, what troubles me is that to, to sort of take the view of a, repeat the view of a very prominent, rather brilliant American military historian, Dennis Showalter, uh, writing in, I think, 2002, he referred to military history as being the last branch of history in which the weak interpretation is still prominent in the sense of an unproblematic account of change and progress. And I think that that's that's a you know that's true. I mean, um, I think you know people are still endlessly coming out with what is a very limited theoretical or conceptual palette. I mean, you know, see the way in which the military revolution, which in a sense 
was rather exploded as an analytical device by scholarship that nevertheless is dully reiterated, um, or see the extent to which the idea that, that because there are leading power in the military system, that's what one needs to focus on in order to understand the rest. That, you know, that again is endlessly reiterated, but by the very nature of things, the paradigm power, the leading power is atypical. And if you wanted to think about the military history of the last 80 years, say, of Madagascar, or you wouldn't be much, you wouldn't be really profiting to focus on that of the United States. I mean, the leading power is often atypical. And the last point on this uh, general matter is that much of the military history we have deals with formal state-to-state -state conflict, but tends to underplay civil warfare unless it is, as it was in the case of the American Civil War, um, it took the form of conflict between regular armed forces, regular militaries. And that is not terribly helpful because in much of the world, um, irregular warfare, civil conflict um, is much more important than, than the international um, version. You can look at Latin America as the classic instance of that. Uh, are you bothered by what some have characterized correctly or otherwise as the, quote, Eurocentric, unquote, aspect of the field? Well, I think it is a problem because it's a problem in many respects. I mean, it's, A, it's a problem in the sense it helps to make the field dull. How many endless things does one want repeating the same sort of stuff? So that's a problem. Uh, number B, it's also conceptually and methodologically uh, relates to issues that affect the effectiveness and proficiency of Western militaries when they operate in a wider context. You see, if you are a state or a society and you have a set, a set, set of assumptions about victory and defeat, suffering and loss, how to impose defeat on others, and you assume that the world is an isotropic surface, equal in all parts, with everybody else sharing your presumptions, you're going to be badly wrong when that turns out not to be the case. And the history of expeditionary warfare, whether by the West or for that matter by um, non-West, I mean, you can think of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the 1980s, for example, reveals the extraordinary deficiencies of that approach. Um, now, I think we've now got a greater understanding than we had uh, before the 2003 Iraq war of the need to consider um, other cultures and their, their military activities. But I'm not sure that it's really broken through necessarily into popular military history. If you look at the coverage of World War II, for example, you'll see there's a dramatic underwriting of the conflict within China which was nevertheless very large scale, very large, for example, Japanese offensive there in 1944, which most people know nothing about. And the frightening thing is care less about. Um, so there's that element uh, to it. And I also think there is the challenge that the more people are interested in technology, weaponry, the less they're inclined to focus about the different ways in which the impact of that weaponry may be perceived in particular social and cultural contexts. But isn't this question really um, about um, 
One is the skill base of uh, historians who are writing in the field, and the second, the availability of empirical evidence which we as historians tend to rely upon. In the case of the first, for example, I'm sure that there could be a great book on military history of, say, the Sino-Japanese War of the late 16th century over Korea. But unfortunately, in order to have a uh, good history, uh, the historian writing it would need to have a full command of uh, those two languages. And it's unfortunately the case that historians who do have that type of skill set very rarely are writing military history, at least in English. Well, that's a good point. And first of all, there is some very good stuff on the 1590s war, particularly the Chinese intervention. Kenneth Swope, for example, at Southern Mississippi in your country has really written some excellent pieces on, on that. What I would say is, first, there is much more material available now in, um, in English um, than there was in the past. So that people looking at synoptic military history or overarching military history need really to consider this. I mean, if you think again about China, the military history of China in the early modern period has been to a considerable extent rewritten by uh, American scholars, Peter Lorge, Peter Perdue, for example. And it's very important that those perspectives are integrated into general military understanding. Now, I'm not sure I would say that they are. And, um, you know, I was involved in a brief spat is the wrong word, but, you know, dispute when I, um, I about 18th century, nature of 18th century warfare, when I reviewed a book by an American scholar called David Bell, in which he, in my view, had misrepresented the nature of the 18th century and he made some fun of me for, which is fully entitled to do, for mentioning Nadia Shah of Persia, who, of course, was a great conqueror in the um, 1730s and 40s. And as with, for example, the um, the Ming Emperor in the 1750s, they indicate the vitality of Ancien Regime non-Western military practice. Now, to me, that actually is important. It means that you should not be adopting as your paradigm account of the 18th century the same old um, view of um, a kind of um, limited, flawed pre-revolutionary warfare, which is then energized and turned into something much more effective by the political and socialization, political and social mobilization that comes from um, that comes from revolution. Now, I can say all that without having to, and we can discuss it and you can disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. We don't need to refer specifically to a documentary series in, shall we say, uh, Beijing or Seoul to have that discussion. We can. There is plenty of material out there which is really interesting, really well written, which looks at warfare around the world. The difficulty is that the the analytical models that are used are very Western centric, and those seem to be what people want because it's almost as if 
the non-military historians want a simple account of military history, whether it's Charles Tilley or Geoffrey Parker, so they can then sort of feel that's done. And it's almost as if the empiricists want a simple account because that provides them with the theory and then they can get on and enjoy the archival research. But what I'm trying to say is that there are in practical terms several possible analytical approaches. One has to be very cautious about assuming the supposed primacy of individual ones. I would like to suggest, I'm fully happy if people disagree with me, but I would like to suggest that there has been an undue anticipation of um, Western and the dominance of Western models of military activity, that those did not, that did not happen. And even so, it was conditioned and limited in some circumstances. That didn't happen till the late 19th century. But I noticed that, you know, the Society for Military History this year, Parker was repeating what he's already said about the percentage of the world under European control by 1800, which is a sort of rather fatuous point, because a lot of that is areas like Siberia or Newfoundland or Labrador, in which the population was, shall we say, somewhat limited. If you rethink of the world, reconceptualize it in terms of where the bulk of the population uh, was, it looks like a rather different account. But, you know, obviously he'll have his point of view. There are room for differences of opinion. Um, what I think is mistaken is to assume that there is some clear account. And all too often I read on the back of books than being, pro, than being praised as this definitive account, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can't really have a definitive account of something that is as complex as this. I, my own view is you can't have a definitive account of history as a whole anyway. Um, but I certainly think that on the theoretical side, the conceptual side, the notion of a definitive account is very problematic and go, looping back to what you said at the beginning is far too Western-centric. Well, I, I thought the whole point of a definitive account is that, in essence, means this particular account is the one I agree with. As, <laughs> as opposed to that other account, which I don't agree with, therefore, by definition, it's not definitive. But uh, get, getting back to two points you just made, one is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't really regard Jeffrey Parker as a military historian? No, he, you know, no, I wouldn't say that at all. I think his book on the Spanish road is an important and interesting book. And I think that he has made some valuable contributions in his essays on the 1590s. There are some good pieces by him. I just do not have confidence in his book, The Military Revolution. And I would have thought for any scholar, you should you know, you wonder, I would hope people would say the same thing about myself. You know, people might agree with one particular work and disagree with another. Just because you disagree with a particular interpretation, it doesn't mean that the, that the scholarship as a whole is flawed. But I think, I think, how should one put it? I think the book of the military rev on the military revolution was played up far too much because it sat within a field that was under-theorized. My particular concern is that when the second edition came out, um, there was not a sufficient attempt to respond to the advances in literature that had occurred by then, 
And judging from the lecture given, you know, I may be totally wrong, but judging from the lecture given, the third edition is going to be similar. I think that's a pity because he's a clever man. I think it would have been more um, valuable uh, if he had tried to integrate the wide variety of stuff, including some very interesting stuff, particularly, as I said, by East Asianists, which, shall we say, let's put it like this, poses a major question mark against against uh, his thesis. Well, if he does come out with a book, that'll be great because he had around six months ago spinal surgery and he's still recovering. Yeah, well, no, he's, I mean, you know, he has, he has, you know, had a history of not being terribly well, but he's, you know, managed to do important work and he's, of course, recently produced a major biography of Charles V. Yes, which I did a podcast with him a couple of weeks ago on that. Uh, getting back to a point that you made, but you didn't, um, I mean, I'll do it for you, didn't explicate. Uh, you were, in essence, were talking about when you mentioned um, differentials in population, which sort of uh, change the metrics used in terms of European control circa 1800. In essence, you, you are referring to what has uh, been called equal population cartogram. Is that correct? I think that's a more help. Yeah, well, it is correct. Yes, I think it is more helpful if you want to talk about military proficiency to consider um, the military activity of the most populous states. Yes, and the control over them. And I would argue that if you're looking at it from the perspective of China in the 1790s, um, Western you know, Western developments are at that stage of relatively limited significance. China, of course, um, had fought Western powers in the late 17th century, uh, beating Russia in the Amur Valley in the 1680s. And of course, a Chinese sort of pirates, the wrong word, but I can't think of anything else quicker to say, had done the same with the Dutch in the early 1660s in Taiwan. And in the 18th century, Russia had been very cautious in its approach to um, to China. So what I would argue is that this, whereas Chinese in the 18th century had expanded greatly I mean, towards uh, over Tibet, uh, Mongolia, Xinjiang. Uh, it, and you know, I would say that one has to be careful of therefore taking the view that there is some uh, inevitable pattern towards Western military development. Yes, or I think in, you put it uh, in some place or other that, in point of fact, while the West as a whole may have um, had maritime supremacy after, say, 1500, the beginning of 16th century, that maritime supremacy was very limited in terms of vis-a-vis uh, -vis land-based empires, China, the Ottoman Empire, Persia, or the, the Mughal Empire in India. Yes, I would argue that. And as far as the naval thing is concerned, I, mean, I think it's very interesting here. Long-range naval power um, essentially um, is something that the Europeans are um, the leaders of from the 16th century onwards. But in terms of inshore naval capability, and remember, most of the world's trade 
um, is a matter of inshore waters, or for that matter, deltas, estuaries, rivers, lakes, etc. Um, the ability of a Western warship to sit off the coast is not necessarily going to determine what happens in inshore waters. So I think one's got to be careful, even though there are impressive Western warships, they are not automatically able to affect what happens in coastal areas or inshore areas. And um, I think one has to, I mean, I think one needs a more varied naval history. I mean, I think that's less significant than for the land history. Again, I tried to do that in a book I did on naval warfare from 1500 onwards, you have got, after all, things like the Omani, the Omani Arabs in the late 17th century being able to beat up the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean and off the east coast of Africa. Um, I think one's got to be cautious about assuming that because um, the West becomes increasingly consequential in in a sort of transoceanic capability that therefore gave them any particular uh, proficiency. And in terms of rivers, um, it's very much the case that the situation has changed in the 19th century. Technology there does play a role. Steamships uh, with iron bottoms are able to go up um, ships, uh, rivers like the Irrawaddy or the Mekong or the Yangtze or the Nile or the Limpopo, but they were not able to. They were not able to do so. There exist such ships um, in the 17th or 18th century. So again, I think it depends upon where one's looking for for for, for the definition of naval power. Getting back to something you said before, isn't the what you characterize as Whig or, if you like, teleological bias in the field in some sense not inherent to the genre of military history? I'm thinking of a book, say, like uh, Jonathan Fennell um, and his book on the British or the Imperial Army in the Second World War, which, au um, fond, you could argue that uh, the thesis is uh, the learning curve thesis of the Great War plus uh, military morale. And, of course, the learning curve thesis, by definition, is very much a sort of Whiggish view of uh, how the Great War, or for that matter, the Second World War, uh, was won or lost, depending upon if you're looking at the English or Anglo-American as <laughs> yes. opposed to the German side. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, I think that's an interesting one. I mean, I've used the notion of fitness for purpose, and I would say most military activities would seek to be fit for purpose. But you see, I'm not sure that fitness for purpose is necessarily Whiggish, because you accept that the idea of purpose and the, and the role of perception of purpose are both culturally constructed, and then you're not, you're not inherently saying that... Um, that uh, one form of social of cultural construction is inherently better than another. Some people would do that, uh, but one doesn't necessarily have to do that. And you know, you can be quite sophisticated about it because let's take the Iraqi army under Saddam Hussein. Now, you might argue uh, the easiest thing to argue if you're doing the classic form of war military history is to say this was a useless army. And its unfitness for purpose was dramatically displayed in um, 1991 and 2003, and that in particular its officer corps 
uh, was inflexible, required assent from above, etc., etc., etc. That is true. But equally, you can turn that on its head and say, well, why is that the case? And the reason it case is because, as in most states, the military is the arm of the state. It's crucial to the state's stability. Saddam Hussein was determined to control his army, uh, not least because, of course, his greatest confidence was in his revolutionary guard. And therefore, it was more important for him to produce generals and officers who were personally loyal to him and who would look to him for, or, or, you know, for orders, and that that, in a sense, was its main purpose. Then it, of course, gets stuck in foreign wars, which would have done well done to have, to have avoided. But the point I'm making is that the concept of fitness for purpose in that case is not, is not constructed in a Whiggish fashion. You are right, Charles, absolutely, that now this is, I don't want to sound, I've got to be careful here because I don't want to sound, well, it doesn't want to sound um, arrogant, but I do think a lot of the stuff is very Whiggish and I do find it very simplistic on that basis. It doesn't mean that it isn't meritorious and often the empirical material is extremely interesting and good. Um, but I do find that the uh, the explanatory models produced for how uh, military systems are to be assessed and how their development is to be assessed or their changes to be assessed are often very simplistic. And the example I just gave you, the way in which it is classic to underrate, unless you're a sociologist, to underrate the significance of command structures from the political viewpoint and to overrate them from the perspective of engaging in combat. But of course, as we know, most armies do not engage in combat against foreign uh, foreign forces. I mean, I think if you're looking at Brazil, you'd have to go back to 1945, for example. Um, so... And Brazil's a big army. Um, so I think one's got to be very cautious about the assessment of what is significant in military history. Can I add another point? Um, another one of my great interests is strategy. And indeed, as you may know, I did a book, Plotting Power, on the nature of strategy in the 18th century, which Indiana published a couple of years ago. And I've got a book coming out next year with Yale on the history of strategy. One of my great concerns with the discussion of strategy is so much of that discussion is again linked to the notion of war winning, which is obviously important, but doesn't relate sufficiently to the need to that in many cultures there is to consider the very existence of force as something that is domestically significant. And therefore, there is, as it were, a collapse of what I would see as an artificial distinction between strategy and policy. A lot of the literature tries to do that. But as one general said to me once, he was being very sarcastic about the standard approach. And he said, well, you know, the same people, he said, do strategy in the morning and policy in the afternoon or vice versa. The idea that there is a clear distinction between it is absurd. Um, and so, again, I mean, if you're looking at theoretical conceptions, I'm not entirely happy with the way strategy is discussed 
endlessly when people talk about strategy they talk about the same lot you know the same cast you know sun tzu clausewitz jomini mahan corbett you know you know and again i'm not sure that that helps us i think in a way we need on that aspect to rethink it and there i think the problem is not so much wiggishness though there can be an element of wiggishness built in to the conception that a general staff is inherently better but i don't think it's a matter necessarily was wiggishness it's just staleness. I mean, just absolutely staleness. People that have invested their lecture notes into writing up Clausewitz and Jomini and then think, well, you know, mid-career, let's throw in Sun Tzu as well. But <laughs> I don't think it's terribly helpful. So in essence, you are, for the most part, positive about what some have called the cultural term in, turn in military history. Well, again, you may know I wrote a book. I think I called it The Cultural Turn or something like that. I, you know, it came out um, some years ago. Um, what I, it was quite interesting. I wrote that book because I like to play the devil's advocate. I wrote that book against the, by which, as you know, I mean just to look at the other point of view. I don't mean that I'm advocating evil. But I wrote that book against the background of the technological triumphalism of the 1990s and early 2000s. I remember, for example, being taken to the Naval Strategy School at Monterey, a rather lovely place to have to give some lectures. And, you know, I was going to give the first lecture on, I think, this strategy of the Vietnam War and what it could show for the present day. And my host said to me, what you need to know is that the Admiral is committed to the revolution in military affairs. You know? And there was very much that kind of, of background. So obviously I sat down to write the exact opposite, to write an interpretation on the need to understand the cultural suppositions. And in a sense, unfortunately, the the value of that approach was my approach was demonstrated all too clearly by what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. I subsequently have written a book on technology and war, which Indiana has published, in which I haven't thrown away the cultural approach, but I've also tried, which I still regard as valid, but I've also tried because I want, you know, when the, as it were, the pendulum swings back, there is always the danger that other aspects of it are are, are um, taken away um, or underplayed. So I wouldn't want to argue that there's no value to looking at technological aspects, particularly in things like um, uh, naval and air warfare, which are inherently artificial because human beings cannot fight on the water or in the air naturally, and also in logistics. But your bigger question, yes, I still think that the cultural approach is valid I still think it's anti-Whiggish, and I would also say that it's fundamentally important in understanding how different cultures have different understandings of victory and defeat. And lastly, in the case of strategy, the cultural approach offers what I think of as the very valuable concept developed by American scholars for looking at China from the 1970s of strategic culture. And I think that's a very valuable concept and again, it's not a weakish concept at all. How does military history, qua military history, differ from what is called war studies? Um, well, I'm not entirely sure about that. <laughs> I, would, 
I'm not entirely sure about that. You'd need to ask a war studies person about that. I mean, I imagine a war studies would person would emphasise that there's much more of a concern with the present. Uh, to me, history, in part, is concerned with the present and in the and the future as well. It's a method of thought. It's not a data set. The data set is that of the past, but the method of thought can be applied in different ways. But I imagine war studies is very much the data set is of the present. Does the popularity of the subject, rather unique in terms of uh, history, uh, I don't think there's any other subfield in uh, the discipline of history which has so much, is so popular as military history, does that um, negatively impact the writing of it? Um, well, no, not necessarily. There's, first of all, there are some superb writers who are not academic, and there is this wonderful readership out there which is interested in the subject, and many of whom are highly serious. Obviously, there is some work that that is less attractive, um, but that, I would put it to you, is true of other fields. I mean, you can get some pretty duff social history on the line, you know, on, on the same sort of line. Um, what I'm more troubled about is the way in which in the academy, in the academic world, military history is not favorably treated on the whole. Uh, there are exceptions, but on the whole it isn't. And I think that that is a major problem. It's a particularly major problem in the United States because the United States is the world's leading military power. And obviously, it's therefore valuable to understand what can and cannot be achieved readily with that uh, capability. So, yes, I, I would say that I'm disturbed by that aspect. I'm not disturbed about the popularity of it. Incidentally, I think probably the most popular form of history is genealogical history. Um, but you're, I would say after genealogical history, I would say military history, you're absolutely right. Isn't one of the most pernicious aspects of the study of military history, at least in the Anglophone world, the fact that um, sources uh, reviewed secondary, much less primary, tend in a large number of cases to be in Eng only in English, and that has a tendency, at least in the past, to distort the views of what actually occurred? I'm thinking in particular of uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even the 80s, um, the American academic and obviously non-academic view of the German army was considerably distorted, German army in the Great War, World War II, by the fact that um, the sources uh, which were relied upon for whatever the various theses is, that were being coming, that were cummed up, that were uh, being um, written uh, written of, uh, tended to be came from translations of uh, German generals' memoirs of, uh, in particularly World War II, and there was almost no primary source material which was uh, uh, looked at, even though in many cases they were readily available in terms of uh, being in the USA or the UK for 15 or 20 years after the war, because in most cases, the historians in question didn't have a good command of German. Well, I think the major problem um, was that the 
German viewpoint in particular of the conflict on the Eastern Front in World War II was too readily taken on board. Now, I've written about why that was, and there are a number of reasons. The wish to believe that the Bundeswehr could do extremely well, uh, the desire to believe that the Wehrmacht had only been invalidated by Hitler, which was a very self-serving view of many of the German generals, etc., etc. I would say now we're in a much stronger position. I mean, if you're looking at the United States, there's marvellous work on the German army in World War II. Robert Satino's work, for example, um, very deeply researched based on a great mastery of the German material. And he's by no means uh, alone. All the great um, scholars who are working on the Eastern Front, one can think of people like uh, Glantz, for example, House um, uh, Stahl, all of them are, you know, looking at both German and, and Russian language material. So I would say the situation is now much better. On the the over-reliance on the generals, and I agree with you entirely, the best work on that is by the scholar Alaric Searle, S-E-A-R-L-E, and he's written some very good stuff um, on on this. And I, I, it's rather disturbing in a way that, that people were taken in so much by the German generals. Um, it's a good book by Bloxham, on uh, which deals inter alia with the Manstein trial in which you know Field Marshal Manstein was put on trial for war crimes in the Soviet Union. And the Foreign Office, you know, put on trial by the Brits, the Foreign Office wanted him to have a you know, proper sentence, not least because they were mindful of what foreign countries might make about this. And the War Office the, thought this was completely wrong, that chaps, you know, ge- generals were chaps and chaps shouldn't hear, be critical of other chaps, you know. <laughs> and you do get that nonsense view um, still to this day circulating. I mean, clearly, uh, there are real issues in terms of relative capability and proficiency. Um, I think they're better handled, not at the element of individual armies, but of individual units within armies. So if you're taking the German army, individual divisions often have very different fighting characteristics. Um, but there's also this sort of, you know, a number of American scholars have I've got the books downstairs. If you gave me the time, I could go and find them for you. But a number of American scholars have, have written very on what they call the American love affair with the with the Wehrmacht. And I think and I think there is a British equivalent, by the way, the Rommel industry. Um, and I think you're right. Uh, but I don't think this came from an ignorance of German. Um, I think, in fact, some of the people who wrote favorably about some of these generals uh, were, you know, quite proficient in German. I think where it came from was a fundamental misunderstanding of the attitude and policy of the Wehrmacht, the war crimes, of the failures of the Wehrmacht in ter- on the Eastern Front, I think, and, and of the self-serving nature of the German generals, who some of these people knew socially. So it's not ignorance of German that was the problem. It's much worse than that. It is a sort of malign uh, misunderstanding of the situation. And you brought up World War One, and if I can loop this into a broader pattern, the broader pattern of this, of course, 
um, is the underplaying for both World War I, but also for World War II, of the extent to which the Germans, and in World War I, the Germans and the Austrians, were responsible for the war. There is this sort of rather lazy and morally relativistic um, um, you know, um, account of World War One, in which uh, everybody's responsible. It's the system that is responsible. This is not simply not the case. And I think, you know, I published, as you may know, I wrote a controversial essay on overrated historians, part of my campaign to make myself the most unpopular person in the profession. And I would, you know, I would put Sleepwalkers by Christopher Clark, Sir Christopher Clark, Regis Professor of History at Cambridge, Fellow of the British Academy, etc., etc., etc. But, you know, I think it's absolutely tosh as far as the account of the military side is, because I think the the general staffs of Germany and Austria bore a large responsibility for for what occurred. And in World War Two, again, I think that the um, the, gen- the Wehrmacht generals um, could have acted very differently. Um, and after the war, they um, were allowed to get away with the most self-serving of uh, of interpretations. And the people allowing them to get away knew German, my friends. They knew German. That was not their crime. Well, we can uh, argue in another episode of Arguing History about sleepwalkers. I myself am a great partisan of the book or and to some some extent the thesis therein. But uh, I wanted to query in terms of the issue of um, uh, knowledge of German, because I'm thinking in particular, I can off the top of my head think think of three or four books which came out in the last 10 years on um, uh, military history by actually fairly well-known British or, uh, in one case, Canadian historians. And I'm thinking of Christopher Bell and his book on Church and the Dardanelles, Robin Pryor's book on Gallipoli, J.P. Harris's book on Hague, or for that matter, the Fennell book on the British Army, the Imperial Army in the Second World War. Uh, none of these books use any uh, foreign language sources, much less German sources, even though you would think um, in, that uh, they would, their thesis and the narrative would be considerably strengthened by having uh, the view of the adversary in terms of what was and what was not occurring. Well, maybe so. I mean, you can discuss it with them. As far as Bell on Gallipoli is concerned, I mean, the adversary is the Turks, not the Germans. I mean, obviously, there are some Germans there, but the adversary is the Turks, and the same is the case prior. I mean, there is good English-language material on the German army in World War One. Christopher Duffy's book on the German army at the Somme is excellent, in my view. I mean, you may have a different view on that. But, you know, I can't be commenting on on other scholars you need to ask them on that respect um but i mean you know i've read the Fennell book and we've discussed it privately i think it's a very good book I'm, i mean, I, I think so too i know, enjoyed it very much i mean you know he, i mean his essential thesis is about the improvement of british morale in 1942 and he's essentially looking at british sources on the as they saw it, the willingness to fight. Now, while it would be useful 
to look at either German or, of course, the other competent source that's significant is Italian. While it might be useful to look at those, given the amount of time that presumably he had, I think he was right to focus on the British one. As far as Christopher Bell's, it's, I, I haven't read so much of that particular prior one that I've dipped into it. I have read the whole of the Bell book. As far as the Bell book is concerned, I mean, he's fundamentally trying to work out whether Churchill took too much blame over Gallipoli and to try and produce an accurate narrative of a complex evolution, first of the idea of the, ma- of the marine forcing of the Dardanelles and then of the decision for the amphibious operation. Um, in practical terms, the use of Turkish sources, had he had the time to use them or the language, I don't know if he knows Turkish, but I don't. I simply don't know Turkish. There we go. Um, had he had the time to use them, I'm not sure how enormously helpful it would have been in the first instance, because what he was looking at was what the British were trying to do and their perception of where this was likely to go. Um, I mean, obviously, if one's capable of a total history, one would like to know everything about it. The ironic thing about the, the Gallipoli thing is years and years ago, when I was had nothing else to do, I went through the postgraduate theses in the Bodleian on military history, and there was one on the British naval mission to Turkey before World War One. And from what I remember of that, it was the British that taught the Turks, not that that makes it better or worse, taught the Turks how to lay mines. <laughs> you know, that was not, well, just as it was the British that taught the Japanese Navy, and that didn't exactly do the British very much good in 1941 to two. Um, so uh, it's not always clear what sources one should be looking at. I, I happen to think that Bell book is actually like the finale, a very good book. Um, so, I mean, again, um, it's, I, I you agree know, with you. Me, it's just, it's just that I found it odd that um, uh, in the case of um, uh, the other side, the opposing side, he relied um, uh, on the English translation of Lyman von Sanders' memoirs. Yes. Well, you know, you can't read everything and presumably that is what influenced him. But um, I mean, as I said, I think he was primarily concerned with the policy of one of the sides. I mean, the interesting thing is you're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, my background is in international relations. and I started on foreign policy in the uh, 18th century. If you are going to write on the development of Anglo-French diplomatic relations date A to date B, then you very clearly need to read both sides. Now, I have written on that, and I have read both sides, and I had very many pleasant times in the Archive Etrangere. But were I to have been only looking at the development of British perceptions of foreign policy, then I wouldn't have actually needed to look at the French stuff. And some, I have to say a lot of the French stuff I looked at was interesting to me, but I didn't actually use because space is at a premium. And what I was primarily concerned about was the debate over policy within Britain. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if one has all the time in the world, it's great to be able to look at as many sources as possible. Former editor of archives, you'd expect me to say that, uh, but, um, but not everybody will and not everybody can. And I don't think that are necessarily worse in that scenario. I mean, you know, I mean, we know that there are some major books, you know, we on the Eastern Front in World War Two. I can think of two of them straight out, and I dare say you can two authors straight out, and I dare say you can think of them as well, who wrote big books on the Eastern Front, and neither of them apparently have any Russian. Um, and one assumed one of them directly thanks translators. I can't remember whether the other one did. Um, uh, you know, so, uh, but that doesn't necessarily make them bad books. It just means that they are, you know, different, limited, limited, yes. And by the way, I don't want people to get the idea that I'm not, that there are no good books in military history which do employ. Uh, different uh, foreign language sources. I'm thinking the one which just came out, maybe you're familiar with it, is Matthew Hughes' book on the British Army in the suppression of the Arab revolt in the late 1930s, where he uses not only, obviously, English language sources, but also voluminous Arabic sources as well as French sources. Yeah, Hughes is a very good historian, really good historian, and uh, actually, if I can say, if I'm allowed to say this, a nice person as well. Yes, I, that was my impression when I did a podcast with him. And of course, in terms of um, uh, looking at things from a German perspective, the Jonathan Boff book is splendid, and of course, that relies in, entirely on, um, or almost entirely on uh, German language sources, particularly our archival sources, some of which he himself discovered, which had never been used by any other historian. Oh, yeah, there's some marvelous work. I mean, Boff also is a nice chap, and another person who I, if, if we're talking about Anglophone work on, uh, another person who I think is really good is Larry Sonthaus, an American scholar who wrote a wonderful work on uh, Holzendorf. So, again, you know, really interesting and important and um given Holzendorf's role in, you know, in the Austrian general staff and the origins of World War One, So there clearly are very good people writing very widely across um, in this empirical research across the subject. And, uh, and, and that is an excellent aspect of it. I, um, I think, Though, uh, as I said at the uh, earlier on, I'm, I'm disturbed at the way in which military history in the United States, in particular, uh, whilst it's very strong in some universities—Chapel Hill, Kansas State, Southern Mississippi, for example—they tend not to be the major places uh, that generate. Um, the postgraduates who then whose references command them jobs as it were um and i mean i once read you may or may not be interested in this i once gave a lecture at yale and you know so they held a reception afterwards and the then head of department a man called paul buskovich nice man pointed out a group of postgraduates to me and he said to me you know jeremy he said this was about 91 92 i think 92 it was. And he said to me, you know, Jeremy, all those people are going to get jobs. And I said, oh, yes, why is that, Paul? And he said, because they've got a strip on their back and on it is written Yale. Now, the point is, um, that may or may not be true, and I don't know 
you know, I'm not talking about, I don't know what happened to those individuals, but I think it's a fair comment that um, military history tends to be done in the United States in places where they are not then going to generate uh, postgraduates who, because of however good they are, because of the branding system, which is so important in the United States, these individuals are going to find it harder to get major league jobs where they in turn will be able to be part of a doctoral teaching program. That's that's also a problem, in, in, for that matter, in diplomatic history. Columbia, for example, doesn't have any historians at least tenured historians who teach either military history or diplomatic history, and the same thing with uh, New York University. At least at Yale, they have uh, one or two people who teach, um, well, they wouldn't call it diplomatic history, they characterize it as international relations, etc., but at least that's something. Although, I, as far as I'm aware of, Yale does not have um, a tenured uh, historian who teaches military history, nor for that matter does Harvard. Yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it is perplexing, isn't it? That's me being polite. It is perplexing. And, um, you know, the United States had, has had some really important military historians over the last 40 years, people like uh, Russell Wigley, Dennis Showalter, John Lynn, you know, really important people. Um, and it's still got some very good people. I mean, you know, there are still some very good people there, but I think it is getting harder for them. And I think they are being marginalized. And I think that's an enormous pity. And I don't think it's healthy for either the subject of history as a whole or for the national understanding of war or for that matter, for the, um, you know, for the um, teaching of military history as a whole. How would you like to um, conclude in terms of a concluding statement? Well, what I'd like to say is, first of all, that um, I would urge people to read widely. I would like people as far as possible to think carefully about the explanatory models that are often there implicitly in what they're reading. And I would like those writing books to think about those as well and to be wary of simple accounts of causation or simple explanatory models. In other words, we often have, as you yourself have said, and I would agree with you entirely, superb empirical research. There's no doubt at all about that. I mean, you know, there are some works that are not so good, but we often have superb empirical research. What I'm a bit worried about is that the general explanatory models, whether it's military revolution, war and society, face and battle, face of battle, many of them are looking very tired and they had serious limitations in the first place. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, uh, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.